as Pastor Jason iterated, our catechism lesson has been extended into the sermon series. Well, not so much sermon series, but has been extended to a sermon. And so I just want to bring to your attention where we've come from till now. As you recall, Pastor JP went through the order de salutis in regards to that order of salvation as you come into the faith. And if you're taking close attention, especially this is supposed to be referencing back to the actual shorter catechism, you'll be able to look from questions 31 on to questions 38 as to the proper application of where he was coming from. So then... With that being said, I have the task of getting you prepared, getting you focused onto that next aspect, which is the moral law. So with that, before we start, let me pray as we literally our God now in prayer as we will begin our sermon lesson. Father, we do thank you for this Sabbath day that you've given us, Lord. Thank you that you made us mindful of the Sabbath. And we thank you that we're here to give glory and honor to your son, Jesus Christ. And with this, Lord, as your servant teaches and your people today, be with him as it is a show to them that you are continually with them, that your truth is continually there to preserve them. And that today's sermon is to show them where true obedience lies, why their faith still must be in you, and how they can have rest and comfort knowing from the time you brought Adam into this world to the last person who will be here, you have given people your word to keep them up there. So in Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So I've titled this process or my portion of the series in regards to understanding the moral law. With this sermon, I titled it, What is Man to Believe Concerning God? And what duty does God requires of man? Now, if that quest or that title seems any way in shape familiar with you, it is actually question three of our shorter catechism is actually the answer to the question. Because in that question, I thought that brought up a very good point. What is man to believe concerning God? And what duty does God require of man? Now, to begin, it pleased the Lord at his own convenience. Not ours, not our thinking of, you know, Lord, I need you today. Can you help me stop my car or anything of that nature? No, 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 no. God operates in his own vicinity and his own workings and by his own pleasure and accord. And so when he reveals himself, it was at his own time. And he done it in many, many ways. Hebrews 1 verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, did it in many portions and many ways. Now, we are people of history. What I mean by that is what we've noticed through conversations not just of our own, but what we hear through TV and various others speaking, but we can hear people speak about stories and fables and adages, and they tell you this, that, and the third. 
Now, depending on the person, if it's just Joe Blow on the street, or if it's some sort of high official office, you're questioning to wonder, well, what point of what you're saying is true? Well, I'm going to tell you this. If you listen closely to what they talk about, you can hear their wants, you can hear their thoughts, but most importantly, you can decipher their ideology. When the president speaks, and I'm not talking about our current one, but you can look out throughout the entire history. When you see how they present themselves and when they've given speeches, you can tell the mindset that they have, whether it's with their own citizens, whether it's another ethnicity of people. And I mean that for those who understand where I'm coming from for studying the uh, 19th century. <laughs> but nonetheless, you can decipher where the person's ideology is going towards. So when you hear a humanist speak, oh, and when they do speak, you should be able to decipher their ideology. Why do I bring up the humanists? Because they don't fall short from what the intent of our true parents actually wanted to accomplish. Where does it seem like all this is going? Well, if you have your Bibles, I want you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to bring your attention first to verse number 6. It reads, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it and ate, and she also gave it to her husband who was with her, and he also ate. You see, the reasoning that our parents took forth of the fruit, they were looking for wisdom outside of God. Oh, that's a conjury. And if you listen to the humanists, when they talk, they want to convey that same wisdom. No, you don't need God to advance human civilization. All we need is ourselves. I'm the one who can start my car. In fact, I'm the one who decides if I'm going to wake up tomorrow. Really? Is that really the case? So, sometimes, to be funny, you can pose a question. So, if you're hurt, cut, broken bone, where do you go to? Well, I, I go to the hospital. Why? To get checked. Why? I thought you can heal yourself. You're the wisest of them all, right? But they don't see the reasoning behind why we have doctors. They just see the evidence by which things actually happened. But they can't put together the why. But I just gave to you here. Our parents sought knowledge. They wanted to seek wisdom outside of the workings of God. Ecclesiastes 7, 25 and 29 even puts this in more adequate um, prospect. I'll start 
at verse 25. I applied my heart to know, to search and seek out wisdom for the reasoning of things, to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolish and of madness. But note what he states, the preacher states in verse 29, truly this is what I only found, that God made man upright, but man has sought many schemes. <laughs> you see what the preacher was trying to convey with verse 29 goes back to what I showed you in Genesis chapter 3. The very fact that human beings throughout the entire history, through all their fables and adages and stories and speeches, were trying to convey a thought process that shows that they're the ones that shape their lives. They're the ones who make the decisions. <laughs> So I want to bring your attention now closely, because my introduction is not yet done, but I want to bring my, your attention closely to what the preacher was stating in the fact that now, after stating, I applied my heart to search for wisdom, but I only found that men seek out their own devices, depending what version you're reading from your Bible. How is it, what was God's plan to make man upright? Well, with your Bible still open, go back one chapter to Genesis 2. I want to bring your attention to verses 8 through 9. Now note this. In God's wisdom and his pleasure and his divine counsel, he planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And he placed man there in whom he formed. And when he was formed, we understand that from Genesis 1. And out of the ground, now note this, <laughs> out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that was pleasing to the sight and good for fruit. What was also there? The tree of life. Also there, the tree of knowledge and evil. There were four rivers that tried to feed and help the trees grow. And note what the Lord does in verse 15 of that same chapter. The Lord God then took man and planted him into the garden to cultivate it and keep it. Now, with all that being said, <laughs> look and note the wisdom of God and how he first wanted to have man. Now, Granted, obviously we know the way the story goes and then uh, what the way the scripture conveyed it and what reasons why. But nonetheless, God had the proper plan to keep man upright. And I showed you to you here. He grew trees where it was good and it was proper for him to eat. The tree of life, which understanding what the representation was, fed and kept Adam Alive. But note in verse 16 and 17 what he commands him. After doing all of this, after preserving Adam, 
the Lord God commanded from any tree of the garden. So the trees I told you about in chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, all those trees you may freely eat, including the tree of life. The only tree you cannot eat from, the only tree you shall not eat from, is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what was the condition? Because the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So, as I'm going to close the introduction here, I'm going to bring your attention in this little contract that God has with Adam. Now, our confession in the Shorter Catechism, the answer to question 20, stated that God entered a covenant of life with Adam. I think I should be able to convey that to you here, especially with the fact that the tree of life was in that garden and it sustained Adam. He may not have known that the tree of life represented Christ, but nonetheless, the Lord commanded him to eat from any tree in that garden except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, upon the commandment that God gives Adam, it was upon Adam to have perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience. And that tree of life was a pledge. You eat from here, you stay alive. But that day you eat from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, well, here are the ramifications. You will find death. And you know something that people don't give a lot of credit for? Adam agreed to those conditions. You know, it's kind of funny. Yes, God commanded Adam. But we note here that being left to the freedom of his own will, which was actually an answer you'll find in our shorter catechism for questions 13 and the larger in 21, Adam had the liberty to eat of the trees of the fruit that were coming from the earth. And that what God gave him. But the thing that Adam did not consider in his own wisdom was that he thought he knew more than God. He thought the tree of life wasn't enough. He thought all the trees you gave me, this doesn't satisfy my belly. It doesn't work this way. But Adam, you agreed to the conditions of the contract. In fact, it is unilateral. You eat from any other tree, you, especially the tree of life being a pledge, I'm guaranteeing you, God is guaranteeing you, I swear on myself, you will have life. But the day you eat from the knowledge of good and evil, that tree you will find death. And I don't think he understood what death looked like. Had he did, remember, Adam was, Adam was looking at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Had he understood what that meant, he probably, in his rightful mind, whoa, I don't want to eat from this tree. But that's not how it unfolded now, is it? So, after eating from the tree, 
and you believed, quote unquote, that it made you wise, you invalidated the covenant of life that God had for you. And because you couldn't keep your bargain, you found death. And even now, still to this day, just like our parents, when they're looking at that tree and suppose that they were going to be the wisest of them all, the preacher states, and I only found that men sought out their own devices. You know, it's funny, the humanists don't want to give God the credit he needs and deserves. And they want to shun Genesis like it's just a fable and a story that it never really truly happened. But, you know, the funniest part is that Genesis really speaks more about the nature and how they behave. And if, Like I said, if you really listen to them, you get down to the core of it, you notice they are not too far away from how Adam and Eve behaved. So where is this diatribe going, you might be thinking. And I'm going to close my introduction with this. And now if you turn your Bibles to Proverbs 2, I want to bring your attention to the reasons why the preacher can state that God made man upright. And in his wise and holy counsel of what he performed from Genesis 2, 8, to Genesis, 16, uh, Genesis 2, 16 and 17. He wanted Adam to understand there's going to be wisdom if you are seeking me. Solomon states, starting with verse 2, make your ears attentive to wisdom and incline your heart to my understanding. Verse 4, if you seek her like silver and search for her as for hidden treasures. Note the intent behind seeking wisdom, but I just conveyed that our parents tried to be the wise of them all after looking at the tree, right? Like they were trying to seek wisdom. What wisdom are you trying to convey here? This wisdom, if you go down to verse number five, is now you understand and discern what it means to fear the Lord. Now you discover the knowledge of God. And Solomon continues by stating, it is the Lord who gives wisdom. You don't find it of your own. Because from his mouth comes knowledge. And from his mouth comes understanding. And in him is stored sound wisdom for the upright. And he will be a shield for those who walk in integrity. He will give you the guard for the paths towards righteousness and he will preserve you all the days of your life. You, on the other hand, will be able to discern righteousness and justness. You will know what equity and equality will look like. And you will know that you will find this knowledge to be pleasant to your heart. You see, this is where Adam should have stuck to. And God set it up for him. <laughs> he set it up well. But what's so funny is now 
after realizing through the eons of time, man is no different from their parents. Everyone is trying to be the wisest. Everyone is trying to do this. But they fail to realize that they can only find true wisdom in the Lord. So with that being said, and I am halfway done, my title is actually the two points I want to convey to you today. So with point number one, we're going to answer what is man to believe concerning God. By this point, I want to bring a sub point, which is how do we know God first? We must have a proper understanding on the basis of how authoritative the scriptures are. They are to be believed and they are to be obeyed. Second, Timothy 3.16 states that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, and righteousness. For why? The authority of the scriptures and that is supposed to be obeyed and believed. It depends wholly on God alone. He is the author thereof. So when you take the book, do not take it with criticism for it is to be the word of God written. And it's going to be your starting point. If you remember in Matthew 7, and I keep bringing that up because that foundation is so important. Matthew 7, 24 through 28 talks about that foundation. The Christ makes it very clear. If I am not your foundation, anything that anybody says was going to sway you. But if, and indeed, if I am indeed your foundation, you can prove the test of time and know what is truth and what is not. So, the going back on the authority of the Holy Scriptures, a lot of the humanists like to say, well, it was made in error and because it was written by men. It does not depend on the testimonies of men or any church. Our catechism even states that. If you look at the uh, standards in chapter 1, in section 4, it makes that plain and clear. But that's not to discard the diverse manners as to which God wants to communicate with the people. And oh, I'm going to bring that up. In this, when God gives the authority by which the scriptures are, they just attest of itself. It's self-attesting. And it's supposed to be in that it's self-attest, give comfort and be able to propagate the truth to the church. Proverbs 22:19 through 21 states, so that your trust may be in the Lord. I have taught you today, even you. Haven't I written to you these excellent things of counsel and of knowledge to make you know the certainty of the words of truth that you may correctly answer him who sent you? See, there's that defense. Having the scriptures as your axiom, you're able to answer, ha ha, the fool. Romans 15, 4. And for whatever was written in early times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance, there's that word again, perseverance, and the encouragement of the scriptures, we, as the church, will have hope. So, those humanists, they like to say, you know, 
like I said, they, it's written by man, and man can commit error. Well, I'm, I'm like, if man can commit error, why should I believe the stuff that's coming out of your mouth? <laughs> but nonetheless, you know, I can even state back to the humans. You know, if you really wanted to, God, in his own diverse and, and his own pleasure, he could have literally just said it. Just the same way he gave Moses the law, right? Well, let me tell you how the people reacted as God was communicating with Moses. <laughs> Do you want to turn your Bibles to Exodus 20, verses 18 through 19? Now note what happens. <laughs> By verse 18, all the people perceived the thunder in the lightning flashes, in the sound of the trumpet, in the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But let not God speak to us or we will die. Well, so much for the humanists and their wants to say that, well, I can't believe the Bible because it's written by men. Israel just said, you know, it's better you speak to us because if he speaks to us, we may not exist any longer. Eye-catching, isn't it? So again, the authority of the scripture should not be questioned. And its inerrancy and its infallibility, it is and it serves as a truth that God is still continually with his people and is with his church. And in his own pleasure, he chose men just like Moses as they spoke to Israel. He chose men that were moved by the inward work of the Holy Spirit to bear witness of his word. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 For this reason, we constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. It was not as the words of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. In 2 Peter 1, 21, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit who spoke from God. So, simply put, the Bible, the Word of God, is self-attesting. And in these two hallmark doctrines, inerrancy and infallibility, if you don't come away with this and have this as your foundation, especially with the approach that we're going to come to, well, you're going to end up like our parents. And you remember how they were dealt with? I suggest you read Genesis 3 when you have the time, in case you forgot. So now... A sub-point into point number one, then how should we look at this source? I mean, I just conveyed to you from Proverbs 2 that Solomon tells us we should be looking for wisdom in the Lord with intent. Well, I want to tell you, if you do so, you're going to be rewarded. I mean, the Lord is not slack to reward his people. He just doesn't reward disobedience. He might be long-suffering. He might long suffer, 
but he doesn't reward disobedience. So in your obedience and looking to seek and grow your knowledge in him, I bring your attention with your Bibles to Hebrews 11, verse 6. And I want you to know when your faith is grounded in him, when it has and is properly founded in Christ, it states, without faith, it's impossible to please him. Ah, those who are disobedient cannot please him. In fact, those who are not even his own cannot please him. But for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. And if that being so, when you come to Proverbs, when you come to Ecclesiastes, unlike a humanist who just reads the book and look for errors and contradictions and try to critique it, you come with a newfound obedience, a newfound hope, a newfound want to have your life led. And note the security that Proverbs states in Proverbs 2 that it comes with the wisdom that is found in God. Now, with this being said, it still continues on that point. When you look for a tent, you're going to find and be rewarded because God wants to reveal himself to his people. So you will know about his personhood in the Godhead. You'll know about his decrees. You'll know about how he executes them in his works of creation and of providence. You'll know about his attributes, both commutable and incommutable. For God is a spirit. He is infinite. He's eternal. He's unchangeable in his being, in his wisdom, in his power, in his holiness, in his justice, in his goodness, and in his truth. And so I will close point number one now in trying to answer, well, what is man to believe concerning God? The Holy Scriptures, as all this should be put together, is the only source that man needs to know about how to know about God. And if man comes with proper intent and the desire by the inward working of the Holy Spirit, man will believe and he will assent to that knowledge. Because you see, the scriptures makes it a way where man can learn about God and the Holy Spirit by special revelation can man only believe what the scripture actually states. The Messiah noted here in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you will have eternal life. It is these same scriptures that testify of me. So this should be a show to everyone. If your faith is properly grounded in Christ, it is going to open a world of opportunities. On to point number two. The other question, what duty now does God require of man? Well, the duty he requires does not change from what he required from Adam and Eve. And that was obedience, absolute, perpetual, and personal obedience from his creation. I will bring to you an excerpt from our confession. Chapter 19, section 1. God gave Adam a law as a covenant of works by which he bounded him in all his prosperity. That means everyone who was born from Adam to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. 
and God promised life upon the fulfilling of it and threatened death upon the breach of it. And he endowed him with the power and the ability to keep it. Romans 10 verse 5. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. Now, that does not mean, and I say this with the greatest amount of sincerity, that does not mean your, just because we're in grace, your obedience has been abrogated. The reason why is because a lot of people like to state that, well, God gave a law and I can decide if I want to do it or not. You know what happened when you decide if you want to do it or not? Again, you seem to not remember how God dealt with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. So obedience is required. It's not abrogated because of grace. In fact, Paul even stated that and corrected the Romans. Romans 6, 15 through 16. What then? Shall we sin? Because we are not under law, but under grace, may it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as a slave for obedience, you are slaves of the one you obey, either sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. The prophets convey that obedience is the penultimate of what God requires of man. First Samuel 15, 22. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and, sac offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is the, better than the fat of rams. And with your obedience, it will come with an aspect that it will show that you actually truly love God. And he will then love you in return. John 14, verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. So someone asked me, Well, Pastor, I feel compelled to love the Lord, for I see it's commanded by Jesus. But how can I now do that? What has Jesus given us? What has God given us that I may be able to do that? Well, what I will say to him is that as a shepherd leads the herd to go here and to go there, our shepherd in turn gave us the moral law as a way we are to know how to obey him. And with that, we can now segue to how we're going to go about this introduction into the moral law. So here, I'm giving you the full understanding and thinking behind Shorter Catechism question number 39, which states, what is the duty requireth a man? Ah, it's part of my title. <laughs> but the answer here is as such. The duty which God requires of man is obedience to his revealed will. And these two verses I want to have and will close with this as my summary as a show to you 
that this duty, that was the same duty that God required of Adam in the beginning, is the same thing that God requires of us now. First, in Deuteronomy 29, 29, it states, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belongs to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. And I bring to you Romans 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Oh, obedience is a form of worship, I see. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is. Well, by the wisdom of God, can I know what the will of God is? And if I actually don't take heed on the wisdom of the world, it's to show that then, as the scripture finishes, I know what is good, I know what is acceptable, and I know what is perfect. So, as we will embark on this journey with the assistant pastors and myself through the moral law, I just want to make sure that you guys will have an understanding of why we have an appreciation of the law of God. In fact, I'll tell you now, through the setup, the pastors and myself will be taking an extensive amount of time and, and this doctrine, other than what we've done before, because by this law, do we know our Lord? Do we know his wants? Do we know the blessings? Do we come to knowledge? Do we come to wisdom? In fact, because we just went through that sermon series with our senior pastor, which I'm praying that he's doing well and has been improving in health, he went through 127 sermons, which I don't even think anybody was simply counting or remember counting. So you may have lost your account around number 75, but he went through 127 sermons on the law of God. And if you really want to remember, uh, think about that, I looked at the timestamps and I know there were certain sermons in between that. It has spanned four years. And the assistant pastors and myself are trying to get through the doctrine of God in approximately three months, <laughs> three or four months. But nonetheless, this should be an eye-opening experience to everyone to understand why we have an appreciation with it. And also, it should, be, it should give you a lot of comfort and a lot of hope that God does not hide himself from you. He wants to give you comfort. He wants you to know that he's continually with you. In fact, he set up the system in the first place, just like he did for Adam in Genesis 2. He gave us sacraments in order to come into the faith. And given one sacrament, it is an assistance to your faith in order to keep you and help you sustain in your walk. So as Pastor Jason will come up to give the exhortation on the Lord's Supper, definitely consider about the application in your appreciation of the law of God. And think about that self-examination that you do on your own throughout the week 
before you come to the table? You know what should be coming to your forefront or should at least peek up in your mind? How you behave as compared to the moral law. And when you do come to the table again and in your examination, it's with the faith in Christ, but in also make right by your repentance to show that indeed you seek a yearning to obey God. Shall I look to our Lord God now in prayer?